Hey guys, welcome back to the Allergy Partners Podcast. My name's Chilka, and today we're going to be talking about kids going back to school and COVID. So COVID is still very prevalent all over the country, even in some places of the world. And now parents are forced to make quick decisions on whether they're sending back their kids to school, if they're doing virtual, if they're doing hybrid. And with so much information out there across the board, it's hard to kind of figure out what is true, what is false, what are the risks, what are the safety measures. So today we're going to talk about all of that and hopefully from our perspective, give everybody some clarity as far as decisions that the families will be making for this school year. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Joel Hartman, who is a physician owner with Allergy Partners. He's currently serving on the Allergy Partners Board of Directors and is acting chairperson for the Operations Committee. He is an industry consultant in the fields of respiratory biologics and food allergy. Dr. Hartman has co-authored numerous scientific publications and currently serves on the editorial board for the Journal of Food Allergy. His passion is active patient engagement in shared medical decision-making. He also has two kids, one starting ninth grade and the other starting fifth grade. I also want to welcome back Dr. T as my co-host and guest today. He's an allergist and immunologist at the Allergy Partners of Springfield outside of Washington, D.C., and he also has two kids that are both in elementary school at this time. I also have two kids going to second grade. The other one is in daycare. She's two and a half years old. So I think between the three of us, we have a good range to talk about today as far as our kids going back to school and the different states that we're in that are offering different models of the school year. So welcome, guys. Thank you so much for joining me on this hot topic. Dr. T, do you want to cover the definitions of what SARS-CoV-2 really is versus COVID-19 versus asymptomatic transmission, throwing in the flu and regular colds that parents might be tackling on this fall season? Yeah, I'd love to do that. And thanks so much for having me and Dr. Hartman on today's podcast. So viruses in general are what we call infectious agents. They're these microscopic, not even organisms, but microscopic things that tend to cause certain diseases, specifically for SARS-CoV-2. This is actually the name of the specific virus that's causing the disease that we call COVID-19. So SARS stands for Serious Acute Respiratory Syndrome. COVID stands for coronavirus. And two means this is the second virus in the coronavirus family that has led to this syndrome of the severe acute respiratory syndrome. So SARS-CoV-2. There was actually a SARS-CoV. They didn't put a one next to it because it was the first one. But that's the original SARS outbreak that you may remember that was first reported in Asia in February of 2003. So SARS-CoV-2 refers to the actual virus. The disease that SARS-CoV-2 leads to is called COVID-19. And then asymptomatic transmission means transmission of the virus from one person to another, but when that original person doesn't have any symptoms. So they don't know they have the virus in them because they don't have any symptoms and they're transmitting to another person. Analogous to this could be something like getting the flu, which is the disease that's caused by the influenza virus. These are two separate viruses, two separate diseases. But of course, as we're coming up into the fall of 2020, coming up into fall flu season, we are concerned of both having the COVID pandemic with us as well as uh, influenza. What have we learned so far as providers through the guidance of AAP in handling this, especially in the setting of our kids now going back to school? The American Academy of Pediatrics, that's the acronym for, the acronym for them is the AAP. June of 2020 published a guidance document. This wasn't a recommendation. This wasn't, hey, this is what everyone should be doing. It was guidance. In there, they quoted, the AAP strongly advocates that all policy considerations for the coming school year should start with a goal of having students physically present in school. That was their guidance statement. I do believe that statement has been weaponized depending on which side of this you fall into. 
to mean whatever you think it means. But if you ask the authors of this guidance, it was not meant to tell people all kids should be in school or all kids shouldn't be in school. It was just meant to say we should work with an original goal of sending kids to school. And the reason they said that was because they believed, and I agree with them, that a lengthy time away from school is associated with a lot of different issues in our children. Social isolation, the inability to address important learning deficits, the inability to identify those students who are experiencing physical or sexual abuse, substance abuse, depression, negative impacts, of course, on student education and social development, as well as substantial impacts on food security and physical activity. And this is something I was frankly shocked by. In 2018, 11.8 million children and adolescents, that's one out of seven under the age of 18, in the U.S. lived in a food insecure household. And many of those kids do get meals, including breakfast and lunch at school. The pandemic has led, obviously, to increase unemployment and poverty for a lot of families, which in turn likely increases even further the number of families who experience food insecurity. So those non-infectious factors play a big role in the AP's original statement. So going based on that, is there a safe level of COVID-19 for reopening schools, Dr. Hartman? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I would, if okay, just like to circle back and kind of piggyback on one of Dr. T's comments, which I think is outstanding, actually. You know, this decision to return to school isn't a one-size-fits-all by any stretch of the imagination. And I think it's important to emphasize, um, we're obviously healthcare professionals, and when we talk to folks about this, that the decision for your neighbor to return to school and have in-person classes might be different for you. It might be different for your aunt, your uncle, your cousins. And I think that it's really important to kind of help folks understand some of these medical, but also non-medical social implications as folks really begin to think, is it right for me to return to school? I'd like to comment a couple of the things that, that I've learned that weren't strikingly obvious are some of the things available at school that kids may not have access to by returning to school. You know, one of the things that uh, Dr. T mentioned was kids who experience physical or sexual or, uh, you know, emotional abuse. Nearly 20% of child abuse is reported by teachers. And so, you know, that's something to consider as we advise uh, our patients and their families about uh, return to school. So I just wanted to, to kind of piggyback on those comments from Dr. T, because I think it's important to understand that this, this really is a complex issue. Even the three of us, before we started recording this podcast, the three of us are parents. We all have kids who are school age, and we're all struggling with what to do with our own children. I know that in my own local school district, we originally had an option for a hybrid model, which we could talk about if we want, where my kids could have gone two or three days a week to school, which we originally elected for. Later, they retracted that decision and said, we're going to start with all virtual learning for the first eight to nine weeks. I was pretty disappointed. I'm still a little disappointed by that. After going through some of this data and some of the recommendations, as well as seeing some other experiences in school districts around the country and some of these colleges, I am way more balanced in my, gosh, I can truly see both sides of this. And there is no 100% correct answer. It really does depend on the, the locality and the family as to what is best for that you know, child and, and their children. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing for us as well as our our work life, right? So balancing the work life, home life, there are families that are fortunate enough to work from home and be able to do virtual all day, every day. And then there's other families that have to go to work and they can't have that childcare for their kids. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, they might not be equipped to do all the virtual learning with the kids. So that makes it harder too. So well, for grandparents, it might not even be safe. Right. Even if your grandparents were normally part of the sort of relationship, childcare, you don't want them exposed. So in many people, they don't have that option that they used to have. Right, exactly. So in my district, we're a small town up here. So we're having four half days 
where they'll go in, they'll be sent home for lunch, and then they're going to do two hours of virtual on those days. And then Wednesdays, they'll have all day to do virtual electives. So Spanish are, for us, I'm also lucky talking to patients because some patients are like, you know, we're half hybrid, but it's two days this week, three days that week. So I don't know what I'm doing with my work schedule. So I feel like it's definitely, and parents ask us too, you know, what should we do? What's the safety protocols? And ultimately I tell them it's up to you and your family dynamics and also how safe you feel the schools are. In my district, I feel like they are prepared. They do have everything in, in the steps that I would feel safe taking my kid to. It's really a personal decision, like you said, and it's hard no matter what you do. Look, I'm going to ask you this. Every school uh-huh. has a plan, right? Uh-huh. One of the thoughts I had was, how are, you gonna, how are any of these schools going to execute these plans? Are five and six-year-old kids going to wear masks all day? Are they going to stay six feet apart all day? Right. So realistically, no matter how good a plan you have, I just can't see that happening. And this is not to say don't send your kids to school. It's when I talk jokingly about sending my kids to school seven days a week, I kind of felt I'm doing that knowing whatever plan is in place is not going to be executed 100% correctly just because it's impossible to do that with children. I'm wondering what you think about that. So I think I have a couple of points on that. I'm also lucky that at the beginning of the pandemic, which also was a really difficult decision for me, but I had no choice at this point. My daughter's daycare actually stayed open for essential workers. So they had about a 25% capacity filled with maybe eight kids in the entire school and the entire um, that were allowed there from day one. So my daughter was going there the entire time. And my husband was like, you know, you're risking her catching this. Like, what are we doing? And I was like, we can't keep her home. She's learning from Blippi on YouTube. Like, it's not okay. So she has to have that interaction with actual teachers. We're not teaching her anything here. So I was lucky enough to send her there. Halfway through the spring season, when my husband had to start going back to surgeries, they also agreed to take my son for a few days and do his virtual stuff there too. So in my aspect of them sending, going back to school, A, yes, I agree. No plan is going to be hundred percent. In my case, I trust my son because he's had the experience of wearing his mask for at least half of the day and during times where they can't social distance. And I'm also lucky that the school, the, the teachers in the school have been on top of them to keep the safety up as much as they can. But also the biggest point I think is going to be, as a parent, don't be that person that sends your kid to school knowing they're sick, which is a huge thing even before COVID happened. And I understand, you know, you have work, you have this, you can't find coverage, but take that time to be respectful for other parents and families and don't send your kid to school sick. We all have to deal with it. We all have to adjust our schedule. So don't be that person. And actually, this is a question I, I have, Joel. I would love for you to comment on this. So the AAP guidance, they have this statement that I don't know if they would write the same statement today with what we know. So the statement was, although children and adolescents play a major role in amplifying influenza outbreaks, to date, this does not appear to be the case with SARS-CoV-2. Now, later in October, Joel, you and I have talked about this before, that the South Korean study came out. So the South Korean's version of the CDC traced almost 60,000 contacts of over 5,700 COVID-19 positive patients. And they revealed that in the older age range, that 10 to 19 year olds, that they may transmit the virus more like adults do, which was a 18.6% rate of transmission, but that kids younger than 10 were less likely to pass, more like 5%. Knowing those numbers, like these kids going to school, I don't know if the AAP would make the same statement that they're not major players in amplifying the COVID-19 transmission. What do you think? I think it's a good point. We, uh, we <laughs> back to Chuka's point, we used to call those parents the ibuprofen warriors. You know, you send, you take your kid into daycare and, uh, hey, has uh, Johnny had a fever today? No fever. And you've got the orange ibuprofen around the mouth from where the parents like shoved it down the throat as they were <laughs> off to school for the day. But enough, I think your, your point is well taken. Um, you know, the, the data from South Korea, I think, is we take in two ways. You know, one, okay, yes, there is transmission in younger kids, but two, uh, maybe not as significant in adults giving us this kind of sense of security, which maybe it's false. 
There was a, a study recently, some data recently published in JAMA Pediatrics, which actually looked at kids under the age of five. And these are kids who actually had mild to moderate symptoms. And what that research group found was that they might have had higher detectable viral levels in their nasopharynx compared to older kids uh, and adults. And so that data suggests that maybe we shouldn't be as reassured by the South Korean data with regards to younger kids, meaning it does look like transmission can occur in school-age kids, you know, younger than 10, as you suggest, but maybe there are higher, higher viral loads in those kids as well. Now, that being said, that JAMA pediatric study was pretty small, and it wasn't live virus that was in the nasopharynx. It was kind of virus particles that were studied. But again, I think as we learn more about this pandemic and about this virus, I think we're going to begin to understand that younger children may actually be an important driver of, of virus spread. And I think it is reassuring though that kids who get sick tend to have symptoms that are less severe. Uh, although I think uh, one statistic I showed is, or I, I saw is that as, as kids are hospitalized, one in three are actually end up in the ICU. And so I, I think the South Korean data is great and it's reassuring, but at the same time, I think we also need to understand that kids may be potent, uh, I shouldn't say potent, they're potent for sure, but they may be uh, potential important spreaders, transmitters of the disease in the community. And then for me, the other part of this equation is, and again, I want to send my kids to school. They are sick of seeing me. They're sick of seeing our house. Things need to happen in the world. They need to go out and be with their friends and play and learn in an active environment. But of course, talking about the same sort of our kids transmitting the disease to each other, to other families, without widespread testing and contact tracing, we're just not going to know. I think that's the other part of the equation that without good data, it's hard to make good decisions. I'm hearing stories, at least right now, of some people waiting two weeks to get a COVID test result back. I know it's getting better, but if we don't have the ability for that kind of widespread testing, quick turnaround in terms of getting the results as well as contact tracing, it's hard to know what or how we're going to actually handle those symptomatic kids when they do come into school. Kind of going off of what you guys are talking about, and this might be a little left of where we are right now, but there's some, you know, we've all heard of the anti-vaxxers. So I guess this could be a two-part question in this little segment now. We now have anti-maskers that are also believing that, okay, if kids, even if they get sick, they're going to be the drivers of herd immunity. Can one of you talk a little bit about that and what we know from data as far as herd immunity with what we even have right now, but then also going back to the anti-vaxxers, where we are with kind of vaccines going into the fall season with the flu and a potential COVID vaccine. And do you even think there's enough trust in it as a first vaccine for people to even give it to their kids? We can go left as, as well as anybody. I think that with regards to the vaccine, you know, I think that the first vaccines that are going to be available may potentially not be quite as effective as vaccines that come later. I think that we're going to be fortunate to have a vaccine when it becomes available, regardless of how effective it is. So I think it's important to understand that the vaccines will get better over time. I think the other thing to appreciate is this concept of, of herd immunity, uh, meaning we are protected uh, from getting infected by other folks having had the virus and having antibodies that protect them against reinfection or having had a vaccine that induces antibodies that may help reduce the spread of the virus. Herd immunity really occurs when there's a set threshold in the community, a percent of patients above which have had these antibodies produced that the virus then can't spread amongst them. The problem, I think, and again, this is really going left, is what you described kind of as anti-vaxxers, is it's really hard to vaccinate in our country the number of people necessary to uh, attain herd immunity. And enough, maybe you know the statistics behind this. Uh, I believe we need to have 70 plus percent of folks with detectable antibodies to really accomplish herd immunity. And historically, we've not done very well with vaccinating to that level. 
Yeah, those those are really good points. We don't know what that percentage needs to be for the herd immunity to actually accomplish that goal. You know, depending on which analysis you read, some people say 50%, others say 70%, like you mentioned, Joel. We really don't know. I do think the three of us talking are work in the field of allergy immunology. Joel and I are board certified allergist immunology. That genre of people definitely believe in vaccinations and immunizations in general. So there is a bias when we're talking about this, but to get over the sort of anti-vaccine thoughts, I do think it's going to be very difficult. Although I believe it will be easier for this specific vaccine than others, let's say like the flu or any others, because of how difficult this pandemic has been. Personally, I've already signed up for multiple vaccine trials as a potential patient. No one has taken me up on it, but hey, I'm throwing my name out there because I do believe in the vaccine process. And I'm very hopeful that some of these vaccines that are in phase three trials, and there's a few of them already, at least in the US, will be effective and safe. And I'm volunteering myself to be one of those subjects. I think it's important to to recognize that in this conversation. I don't think that any of us um, kind of want to debate vaccine versus non-vaccine. It's not the the platform for that, although we all three are probably in favor of vaccinating. You know, I think it's a good point. Uh, I'm the same way. I'm in line for those vaccine trials as well. I'm willing to get vaccinated if, if... available and if it helps further the science you're kind of getting back to the earlier point about these these vaccines i mean the fda with regards to its requirement for this first round of vaccines in order to say that these vaccines are effective the these new vaccines really just need to be 50 percent more effective than placebo i mean that's great but I don't know that 50% to a scientist or to a, a you know, healthcare professional would be our penultimate goal, right? You know, we'd love to see uh, effectiveness that's greater than that. So that's kind of, a, again, a testimony to the fact that even the FDA is recognizing the vaccine, a vaccine is better than no vaccine. The first vaccines aren't going to be as effective. That's why the bar is set lower and they will improve. But I do, I think it's important that as part of this recovery, from this pandemic that we do have a vaccine, you know, vaccine available. And you're right, we're not exactly sure how many folks need to be vaccinated to protect the herd from getting infected. But, but I do think it's going to be a very important part of, a, of our recovery through this pandemic. And I do want to say to Dr. T's point, it's, interest, it's been interesting to see patients come in that I know are somewhat anti-vaxxers or you know, don't believe in it, but they're the ones that are like, we can't wait for a vaccine. We want to we don't want to leave the house until the vaccines come out. So I have seen more people willing to potentially try this vaccine for COVID than I have for flu or even MMR or any of the other ones. So circling all the way back to where we left off before we went left, what's your opinion as far as should schools open all at once? Is there a safe level of the reopening of the school? I think it's important to recognize there's really no validated threshold level of virus spread in a community that really guarantees any particular degree of safety with regards to sending kids back to school. And I think three metrics uh, that are important to consider when assessing a virus's spread in your community is really the number of COVID cases, hospitalizations in, in the community, as well as how many tests for the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus are coming back positive. The World Health Organization, WHO, has published criteria which include rate of positive test results uh, as something that's important to follow. So the World Health Organization says rate of positive test results less than 5% in the previous two weeks is a better measure of activity in the community versus the number of cases since the uh, former, um, the number of positive test results in the past two weeks really does consider the capacity of testing. Meaning, if you look at two communities and you've got one community where the positive test rate is 20% and another community where the positive test rate is 4%, that might indicate that either in that 20%, you're testing the sickest of the sickest or you're just not testing enough people. So I do think that rate of positive test result 
uh, value that the World Health Organization came up with uh, is really probably a better measure of activity in the community. And interestingly, if you go to the Johns Hopkins COVID tracker and you look at uh, those states that have had less than 5% positive test rate in the past two weeks, there are only 18 states that meet that criteria. That's as of August 20th. Um, and we're all from different states. Uh, Chopi, you're from New Jersey. The 1.37% was the positive test rate August 20th in New Jersey. It was 5.44% Virginia, Dr. T, where you are, and it's 5.73% where I am. So, uh, you know, North Carolina, not looking as good as you guys. I know we'll probably touch on UNC Chapel Hill a little bit later, uh, but that kind of is in keeping with, with what we're seeing with these numbers. Actually, uh, the Harvard School of Public Health recommends less than 3% positive test results in the past two weeks with regards to uh, maybe a, a safer level with regards to going back to school. And, and Dr. Sean O'Leary, Vice Chair of the AAP, American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Infectious Disease, says less than 1% is better. So I wish I could tell you that there's a you know, audited threshold, but I do think this number of, of less than 5% positive test results in the last two weeks um, is, is a step in the right direction. And just to add to that, this less than 5%, it's not completely arbitrary, but it's a number that a group of humans came up with rather than prospectively studied, validated, this is the number, which is why, to Joel's point, different groups of experts have stated different sets of numbers. So less than 5%, less than 3%, less than 1%. Obviously, the lower, the better, but it's hard, especially in certain parts of our country, to get to those decreased numbers in terms of rates of positive tests. This is not a perfect science and everyone's trying to do their best to balance out both keeping our kids or trying to get our kids into school as well as keeping our communities safe. Oh, I'm sorry. I think what makes us different and not too from other countries who've gone through this before us and have seen, you know, lower numbers and maybe had success with school is they haven't gone back to school with numbers as high as we've seen you know, in the United States. So yeah, not totally. only, you know, not only is this kind of, you know, you don't want to say we're making it up as we go. Uh, that sounds very Indiana Jones-ish. But, you know, in some respects, you know, we are. Uh, and we're learning on the fly and we're adjusting on the fly. And you're right. These are, these are human decisions based on, you know, intuition and what we've seen. But, uh, but we're different. We're different as we open, reopen schools uh, relative to other countries. Well, I know in my school, they're doing a lot of hand sanitizer, temperature checks, they're doing, you know, the one-way, two-way arrows on the floor, they're spacing out the classrooms. There's a lot of schools in Jersey that initially started off saying they're going to do hybrid or in-school, but then as the time came, they all went all virtual because they didn't have the correct precautions and equipment to make it safe for the kids as much as they could based on guidelines that they have. So what physical changes do you think are really important for the schools to reduce the risk of these kids? And do you think it would help keeping kids in little bubbles or pods versus just spreading them out in the classrooms? Um, you know what? I'll take the pod question, Joel, if you want to take the uh, physical space question. So this concept of grouping kids in bubbles or pods, and when looking at the available science, there was an unpublished simulation. So unpublished is always tough because it hasn't been peer-reviewed. So take it for what it's worth. An unpublished simulation of school children in Washington State found that bubble sites of about 20 students and one teacher created a, quote, significant benefit, end quote. Now, to be effective, the kids have to stay in their bubbles where this argument becomes a little bit gray is what about those kids who then go to after-school care or then go on the bus and go home? They're not staying in their bubbles. So in these simulations where these people are actually in their bubbles and staying in them, that sounds great. To me, though, the reality, especially in public schools, maybe in private schools with less kids, you can do this, but especially in public schools, Again, the after-school care, the buses, these aren't going to be bubble-fied. And so the exposure to each other is going to be much more 
dramatic than in these simulations. I like to, you know, I'm thinking of all sorts of, of analogies and not as you, because you talk about that, but bubble busters, right, is what I like to call them. I mean, anybody who has kids who've ever ridden a bus knows that that bus can be like a third world country at times, right? But sometimes what happens on the bus stays on the bus. It's kind of like Vegas, but the bus is a different place altogether. And there may be less oversight, less regulation um, on a bus. And so, you know, as we've been thinking about, you know, what to do with, with, with our kids, that bus conversation keeps calling, you know, coming up. Uh, and so I think it is important to, you know, really consider what happens after school. When you go and, and as a parent, you're touring schools and considering, you know, live versus remote learning. Well, well, what happens when the bell rings and, you know, dance starts or high school basketball practice starts? And then is what happens when they get on the activity bus? So there's all these times where our kids are going to kind of step outside of the bubble um, and you know you got to think about those things and, and really ask what are the policies in those places? Is it is it you know fewer buses, right? Is it fewer kids on buses? Um, I don't know that there's a right answer to that. And I think you had a good point. You know, I know families and friends that have literally done nothing for the last six months, not left their house, have been ordering everything in. We have been a little bit less strict over the last couple of months, but in everything that I do and go. I my question, my first question is, hey, what are you doing to keep us safe? The same way as you're asking us what we're doing to keep your property safe or your team safe or whatever. So my son is going and back playing baseball. And my first question was, what are you guys going to be doing to keep these kids safe? Because I don't know what this family is doing after they leave practice or before they came to practice. So I think asking the right questions and doing what you feel is safe and makes you feel comfortable is huge in this going forward. Just to add to that, Toka, I think the three of us also have a different experience than most people. All three of us are still going into the office and seeing patients on, if not an everyday basis, very close to every day. And I do think that creates a, hey, I've been doing this every day for the past six months during this pandemic. And I've been fine or I've not been fine. That experience I do think creates for us a little bit more sense of security if we do send our kids out because we ourselves have been going out again almost every day for all three of us. We all have kids all different ages. Um, like I said, mine's the youngest going to daycare, but I know Joel, you have one that's going to high school. What age range do you think is the safest, I guess, to send back because there's different opinions about, okay, well, elementary should go back, high school probably stay home. Where do you think the age ranges lie? Looking at the data, evidence-based, I do still think that although cases in young children are higher now than they were in May, there is evidence that children under the age of nine um, and then five, like I mentioned, still can transmit disease. The overwhelming data currently shows that illness in those children are probably less severe um, than in older kids, and the transmission rate still is lower. So it makes sense that if you're going to think about which kids go back to school first, um, they be younger kids based on kind of science. Now, that being said, we are, we're a household of two extremes. I have someone going in the ninth grade and then someone going in the fifth in high school, I mean, these kids really need socialization. Um, and my son in particular, wonderful kid, but really struggled last year with remote learning because he did not have friends uh, that he could um, commiserate with. He didn't have those social experiences or interactions. And high school is an important time to form, in some instances, relationships that you have forever um, who are seeking independence from your family while still maintaining a sense of, of attachment to your parents. You're exploring boundaries. I mean, college is like that, is, is like that as well. Um, but it really does kind of mark a transition from a very uh, more protected part of your life to one where you're becoming more independent. And I don't want to overlook 
the, the social ramifications of keeping high schoolers at home in favor of sending younger kids back first. In fact, there are some models where graduating seniors go back first, and then they brought in younger kids. And so, you know, though the science might indicate um, infection rates are lower, disease severity is lower in younger kids, I think it, the, the social aspects of being in school, being around your peers, learning face-to-face um, with your teachers um, as you prepare for the next stages in your life, I think it's something that can't be overlooked. I don't have a good answer to your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I actually agree with a lot of what you said, Joel. I think from when you look at purely the science of the infection, so severity of infection, the rate of transmission, if you are going to open the schools and stages, you should start with the younger kids. I think that part is not fairly clear, but there's a strong body of evidence pointing towards that statement. Send the younger kids first. I also just, as I'm not an educator, but I don't get how a kindergartner is going to learn virtually. I just don't understand it. If they can't read, how are they going to know what buttons to press on the keyboard or how to navigate the laptop? I just don't understand. So both from a infection point of view, as well as a the actual act of education, I do think if we are going to emphasize which kids go to school first, the younger ones are who we should emphasize. At the same time, I completely hear your point, Joel. I think each kid's different. I think some are more social than others. Some are introverted, some are extroverted. I know personally, I needed that social interaction during that time of my life. It was really important to my development. Looking back, I don't remember a lot of calculus, if I'm being totally honest, from high school. But I remember my friends. I remember the relationships. I remember me becoming who I am in high school and college. And a big part of that was my social interactions. So as a parent, Joel, we're all struggling with that. And as a parent of a high schooler, I can see where you're struggling with that with your son. How do you get that social interaction? Because it does play a big part, not just in their education, but they're in their maturing and in their development. It's tough, you know. As a, you know, and I think that's that's something that's that's humbling about this, right? As as healthcare professionals, a lot of times we're treating diseases that maybe we haven't experienced personally, right? You know, um, I've never had asthma, but I treat a lot of folks who have asthma. And I absolutely empathize with how they feel and, you know, what they've dealt with and their journey with asthma. But I've never lived it or walked it. With this conversation about schools, about living in this pandemic, about what to do next, you know, it, we can speak to it in a way that I think we've not been able to speak to other things because we're living and breathing the same exact decisions. And in many instances, we have access to the same data, the same information at the same time as our patients and their families that are try- are stepping through the same thing. So I think it's a very unique time. You know, I've asked my, my patients what they think I should do in instances, you know, with, with my with my 14-year-old. What would you do? Because it's always nice to, you know, kind of hear other folks' perspectives. Yeah, and like I said, if my two-year-old didn't have her daycare, which I'm so thankful for, she would be learning from random kids opening toys on YouTube, which nobody wants that. So what is up with that by the way? It's so annoying. The, I hate the it. Watching of the videos of other people you know what actually to defend these children, I like watching videos of like tech YouTubers who like open up the new phone, the new features. So I guess it's the same version of that just in younger people. Yes. But and I see these things like what is happening? They're just opening boxes of toys. Why are these children watching this? Okay, but I'm sure your techie videos don't have awkward porn music in the background. <laughs> yeah, but where we are in different stages of life, like, you know, I totally could sit and watch something to tacky porno music if it was like mowing the grass. And that's because I'm 45 and I'm old and I understand the value of a nicely mowed you know, yard. But Shoka, I think you asked me a question an hour ago about physical space in school. Yes. And <laughs> I was wondering where we left off. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I, although I could talk about TikTok and gaming and mowing the grass, I don't have an opening presence uh, most of the day. Um, and no one can see because this is going to be a podcast, but Dr. T did some crazy stuff with his hands that if we had some music just now, it would be a fantastic TikTok video. <laughs> I think kind of getting us back on, tra on track, you know, what physical changes can schools make really to reduce risk? I, I think, you know, three big things come up encourage airflow, maintain social distance, and really clean everything. So in many instances, the school ventilation systems are dated, and you really need fresh airflow, um, you know, through a school to really reduce risk. Uh, but, you know, school budgets are shrinking, and it's quite expensive to go through um, every school and replace and update you know, HVAC units. Other options include smaller air cleaning units that could be used in smaller classrooms and offices that obviously wouldn't help for you know, larger rooms and larger, you know, larger lecture halls. But again, these things cost money and with shrinking public school budgets, I mean, it's, it's hard to do those things. I think it's also important, the power of outdoors. So we went and toured a school because we're still debating remote versus in-person for our high schooler. And they had a huge outdoor classroom set up. I mean, it reminded me of like Goodwill hunting. Uh, and, you know, as often as you can use the outdoors, use the outdoors, open windows if it's safe, right? You know, if you, your school is near a driving range, maybe you don't want to open uh, the windows with their high degrees of, of pollutants or pollens, but opening windows, having classes outdoors, those are ways to encourage fresh air. You can reconfigure buildings um, to allow for social distancing, such as limiting class sizes, facing the desks away from each other so you're not sitting face-to-face. One-way hallways, we have arrows, the, or there were arrows in the, in the school that we toured, uh, plexiglass sneeze guards that can be set up between desks. Joel, is, is this a different school than your son would have normally gone to? Yes. So we, so we, uh, this, the school that we toured, so my son currently is in, in public school and the school we toured was a private school. Um, and we actually have friends who teach at different local private schools. And it's fascinating the things that these schools are implementing. Unfortunately, the kids that are going to be most affected are the kids in those vulnerable populations. So there was an analysis done of over 800,000 students. Uh, the analysis was done from researchers at Brown University and Harvard. And they looked at this online math program that these students were assigned and both pre and post closing of the schools. And what they found was that the student progress in math did not decrease at all in high income zip codes, decreased by a third in middle-income zip codes and decreased by a quarter in classrooms located in low-income zip codes. In a separate analysis published in June of 2020 by McKinsey, they stated that when all the impacts are taken into account, the average student could fall seven months behind. This is just from the school that they missed, seven months behind. While black and Hispanic students could experience even greater losses. Black students, it was 10 months behind. Latino students, nine months behind. We are lucky, I think as you are, Joel and Choka, that we have the capacity to look at some of these other options. There are a lot of families that don't. And I do think that when we do talk about should schools reopen, we really do have to acknowledge that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, not only, you know, these regressions and academic gains are going to be seen, but that's going to be impacted by a number of things. I mean, reliable internet connections, um, you know, reliable technology. And, you know, that effect, like you mentioned, isn't going to be equal, um, you know, for all. I mean, it's really going to further the divide in socioeconomic disparities. The AAP, American Academy of Pediatrics, pointed out that such disparities are likely to worsen, and again, more so with, uh, in children with disabilities, children living in poverty, and children of color. And so, you know, this pandemic and this school issue really, um, you know, could strike a deeper divide in the disparities we already see.
we touched about the mental health aspect of this and the social well-being. I think this also goes back to the low-income families that need this the most out of everybody. So definitely, but at the same time, these are also the schools that don't have the funds to open safely. So it's a you know tough situation and. I don't know, there's no right answer like you guys said before. So I want to maybe talk about the last topic in this podcast, and that's tackling our opinions. And if we have any facts to go along with it, kids wearing masks. I know a lot of parents come in and ask us, actually, so in my case, I had two different patients or parents come in with their kids and within the same half hour, one parent was, would you support me if I didn't want my kid to wear a mask in school because I feel that it's suffocating and he has asthma and I feel like their immune systems can just deal with it. The next 10 minutes, I had a patient saying, please send me a note or give me something that says that my kid has to wear a mask or I will keep him home virtually because I don't feel safe with my child not wearing a mask. So you have so many different opinions there's, you know, stories around the world that are just being thrown out at you social media wise. What do we know so far about kids wearing masks and the benefits of it? This is a, has unfortunately become a controversial topic. Guys, Dr. T just gave me a look like, what are you even saying right now? Why are you bringing this up? So I think all three of us would agree in our heart of hearts that we do believe that masks reduce the transmission of this disease. There is... A lot of science that has shown this. I mean, just to talk about one, there was a study in the Boston Hospital System published in June of 2000, sorry, July of 2020. And what they found was the use of masks. There was a pre-intervention period before having masks, then intervention period with having masks. The rate of infectivity decreased from 14% to 11%. And each day of wearing a mask, because this is like a short study, decreased by about 0.5% per day, the rate of transmission in this hospital system. So there are other studies showing this. Wearing masks is not perfect. Of course it's not, but it does help. I think the specific question about masks in children, in schools, I don't know personally if we have data on that, but if we extrapolate from the available studies, I do think wearing masks is important, not just in kids, in schools, but all of us. With that being said, I know it's hard, especially for kids. So families making the decision about whether their kids are going to school or not, I do think you have to be realistic that it's not going to be 100% kids wearing masks in schools the whole time. It's just going to be hard for them to do that, especially younger children. And I, I, I agree with everything you said. I do think it's important to uh, to recognize wearing a mask could be challenging. I mean, you look at the CDC, and really, it's not recommended in kids under two. You know, other folks who have you know auditory or visual problems. You know, there may be other health conditions. So, as a as a healthcare professional, I mean, it's really important to kind of look at those kind of as one offs. You know, case by case. Uh, an interesting thing I heard, too, is for younger kids, you know, maybe teaching to the length of time a kid can tolerate a mask. So if a young kid can tolerate four hours of masking, but not six, perhaps four hours of education or four hours of seminar, whatever is the appropriate length of time. Uh, you know, I don't know. Again, there's no right or wrong answer, but I do wholeheartedly endorse and agree with wearing masks. Uh, I think it's been shown and evidence is mounting that it does reduce transmission. I mean, a, a cautionary tale comes from, from Israel. Uh, two weeks after schools were reopened um, in Israel, and this was specifically a, a one school in particular that went from 7th to 12th grade, they um, experienced a really severe heat wave. And so they allowed three days of non-masking. And within two days of that three-day period without masks, there were 153 students and 25 staff members who tested positive for um, the coronavirus. And that resulted in additional 87 confirmed cases in the community. So I think that there are two things that highlights. I think masking helps. And number two, schools are really just kind of an example of the community at large, right? 
I mean, here's an example of a school where transmission went up and that affects the community. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing also in a lot of university settings now as colleges have gone back. Just to wrap up, does anybody have any closing comments? And also, if we can just kind of give what we're thinking as far as our kids and what we're doing. I know we touched about it a little bit here and there, but what we're thinking about this season with school and any final comments on this topic? Sure. I'll do kids first. So two very different kids, wonderful, beautiful kids, that 10-year-old, 10-year-old girl, 14-year-old boy, 14-year-old pretty outstanding basketball player, 10-year-old um, outstanding dancer. And my daughter, I mean, she did fine with remote learning last year. She's very flexible, found it very easy, very relaxed about it, um, you know, found other avenues to communicate with her, with her friends, you know, via Snapchat or things like that. We let her use our phones. My son, just different, hardwired differently. You know, he didn't do well with remote learning, didn't do well with kind of the, the social isolation, really had some kind of mental health struggles because of it. And so with our daughter, it's pretty easy, you know, um, Remote learning. We're starting with remote learning for the first nine weeks of the year, and then it's going to be reevaluated, and it'll be kids up through um, a certain grade live learning, and then high schoolers stay at home. So with her, it was a no-brainer. She's fine. We're not struggling with that. But our son, we really are concerned about the impact it's going to have on him from a mental health standpoint. And so, although public school has started and he has started his remote learning, you know we're touring other places and other schools and looking at their policies because for him, even though there may be risk associated with going live, um, you know, for him and, and his, his mental health, and to be quite honest, my wife and my daughter's mental health, we're going to be home with him for the next, you know, several months. You know, I think that the right thing for him may be live learning. I also have two kids, 11 and nine, both boys. And like you, Joel, there are, Definitely personality differences between the two. One is a self-starter, self-learner. He'll do well in any environment. Another that really struggled with remote learning. Now, in our public school district, as I mentioned before, we previously had the option of a hybrid model. It has now gone away, at least until October, and so it's all virtual. So my wife and I are really concerned about what this is going to look like, especially for my son who struggled with the virtual learning. We haven't looked at other options yet, although I have had friends in my neighborhood with similar concerns who have and are looking at other options, including my neighbor who's sending their kindergartner to private school instead of originally planned public school because of her age. And again, concerns about how do you virtually teach a five-year-old child. All joking aside, if my local school district offered full-time in-person schooling, I would send my kids, but I wouldn't do it confidently. I think I would have a lot of trepidation. Um, my wife's father is a big part of our lives. We, he lives very close to us. He normally eats dinner with us multiple days a week. He's in the house all the time. He hasn't been during the pandemic, and that's something we are going to continue even uh, ongoing until there is a vaccine program available to him or us. But because of him specifically and how much we interact with him, I would be concerned if the kids were going to school. Now, again, I don't have that option. We'll see in October if anything changes and that option becomes available. I would take it even then if it became available, but right now I don't have that option. And for me, I have the two-and-a-half-year-old that's in daycare and the seven-year-old that's going to second grade, he did okay on the virtual last um, spring. I think he started getting to a wall at some point where he was like, I miss my friends. I miss going to see my teacher. He missed the interaction. And I totally understood where he was coming from. That and also, you know, where I'm not a teacher for a reason. And I thought my kid was stupid because he couldn't understand basic instructions. <laughs> And then I realized that, you know, the teacher By the way, was the amazing. Amount argue, the amount of arguing that happened during virtual learning, I didn't realize virtual learning had that much um, arguing and yelling involved. But in my house, it did. So, yes, I, I hear what you're saying. So, okay. Yes. All those memes about the kid being sent to the principal every day, all, all that, all that was true. 
Um, so I think, you know, we've definitely had more of an appreciation for the teachers and what they do for us. And we now all realize that it's our kids, not the teacher's fault. But on a serious note, like you said, Dr. T, you know, I'm sending my kids back, both of them back. Um, well, my daughter hasn't really ever stopped, but she's going back. He's going to go. And because of my schedule and my husband's schedule, there are going to be days that I will be sending him to the aftercare program, which they've told us are going to do the pod. So they're going to have 10 people. But again, like what you said, I don't know what the kids are doing afterwards. My fear and anxiety is going to go back through the roof again. Also, to your point with the grandparents, you know, I basically told my husband, like, we're going to have to go back to not letting your parents really come around them and distance from afar when they do want to see them. And my parents, my dad's high risk, so they definitely won't be coming back to see them um, once school starts. So, yes, it's beneficial for them and it works for my family, but all the anxieties from the beginning of the pandemic are going to come back until we really know the risk and what's going on with the school districts. And I think it's huge that the larger your district gets, the more risk you kind of have without knowing all the information. And I'm fortunate to be in a smaller school district um, where our, you know, town government officials give us updates on our town cases and stuff. So that's also something that's been reassuring to us. I did want to touch base real quick before we talk about final thoughts. A lot of my friends that have all virtual are now getting together with their closest neighbors, I guess, that they've been hanging out with throughout this whole pandemic and forming their own little pod. So one, you know, a couple of days here, this neighbor will take all the kids. Here, another couple of days, another neighbor will take all the kids. Have you guys thought about that? And what's your quick opinion on that? So we uh, we actually have thought about that. Um, and we have a group in our neighborhood, that they call it co-op, kind of a teaching co-op or a school co-op where you may have six, seven, eight kids that get together and learn together, right? So the, the parent that's there that day is there to make sure they get online, that the, you know, that there, if there are questions that they're addressed, you know, and I think it's a great idea for that kind of social connection that you may not otherwise have. I don't think I have enough money to afford the cases of wine that my wife would need to be a homeschooler for, you know, a homeschool teacher for nine or 10 other kids. Um, and so for us, uh, you know, our daughter does fine. We considered it um, uh, for my wife and for my budget and for fear of not wanting her to become an alcoholic, we decided not to. to You're being this. ambitious. I was thinking like three kids tops. <laughs> <laughs> so exactly similar conversations in our neighborhood, We've had conversations with specifically our closest neighbors about doing something similar, but it's a matter of who's going to do it, right? Um, both my wife and I work, who's going to be that parent that day. We really wouldn't be bringing a lot to the table because of our, we're both physicians are both uh, working every day. So that, that would be kind of hard. And our neighbors who maybe don't have the same professional schedule, it would be putting so much on them. And so we, talked about it initially, but didn't feel comfortable putting all that burden onto one or two people alone. Maybe we'll revisit that as time goes on. I see a ton of appeal with that idea, but right now it's, at least for us, it's not practically fair or possible. And it really is an example of innovating, you know, and, and I think that it shows that folks maybe do understand, you know, the risks of larger groups getting together and, you know, favoring smaller groups and, and also acknowledging the importance of socialization. So, I mean, I commend folks for thinking of it. I think it's a, an innovative idea. It's not for everyone, um, obviously, but, but it's a way to understand what's happening in the community, uh, understand kind of the risks of, of, that are there inherent and, and adapting to it. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I think, so going back to the one study that Anunk had talked about where, I guess, in Washington State, they modeled appropriate bubble size, a 20 to 1 student to teacher ratio. I think one of the things really to take away from that is you really have to know what's going on in the community because no degree of potting, it's, I guess, the new word I'm going to call potting, no degree of potting um, you know, personal hygiene, hand washing, masking, physical changes in the school are really going to prevent the epidemic spread of the virus if the virus isn't contained in the community. And so 
I think ultimately for schools really to safely, and I put safely in air quotes, just like I put normal in air quotes in, you know, in 2020, but to safely kind of reopen schools universally, I really do think the emphasis still needs to be, you know, reduction, elimination of community transmission, increasing um, testing with readily available results and really to improve our ability to contact trace. Otherwise, I just worry all these changes aren't going to make you know as big of a difference. Yeah, I completely agree with Joel. I think my final thought is, and I wrote this down in my notes in all caps, this is hard. There is no right decision. I know the three of us, we were a little bit concerned before recording the podcast that we didn't want to come off as one side versus the other in discussing this really complicated issue. There's so many factors, both medical, infectious, social well-being, educational, mental well-being, financial, um, risk for the community that all have to be taken into account before individual communities and families make their own decision. All three of us on this conversation have struggled with it as well. So this is really, really hard. I hope that whomever listens to this learns a little bit of what the available science shows, as well as maybe looks at other non-science factors like well-being, food insecurity, things of that sort, to make the best decision for their community and their family. And we hope the best of luck for whoever's listening in making these decisions. It's hard. It's really, really hard. Well, thank you guys both so much for joining me today. I definitely learned a lot. It was great to hear your perspective on what you guys will be doing with your kids. And I hope all of you listening also got some insight as well. Till next time, just remember that our family is here to help your family. Thank you.